Welcome to the Woven Roots Fiber Podcast. Woven Roots, the Appalachian Fiber Story Project, is an initiative of the Community Farm Alliance to tell the story of how fiber farming, arts, and entrepreneurship in Appalachian, Kentucky can contribute to a bright future in the mountains. I'm your host, Sam Hamlin. In this special final episode, we join Candace Mullins and Michael Wiles for their first Fiber Day on Cedar Creek Farm in Somerset, Kentucky. We hear from Candace Mullins on turning flax to linen, Michael Wiles on ethical and sustainable high tanning, and Philip Willett, master weaver and spinner, on the art of working with natural fibers. Thanks for listening in to the Woven Roots Fiber Podcast, your place for Appalachian fiber stories. Nestled in the hills of Pulaski County, Kentucky, Michael Walls and his family operate Cedar Creek Farm, home to a multitude of agricultural endeavors, including raising heritage breed Dexter cattle for grass-fed beef, operating a vineyard and winery, caring for vegetable gardens and fruit and nut trees, and tanning a variety of hides using sustainable practices. In addition, Candace Mullins has grown and harvested a plot of flax for two seasons on Cedar Creek Farm and is exploring small-scale linen production. In late October, Candace and Micah hosted a fiber day at the farm with the goal of bringing together farmers, artisans, and all those interested in working with natural fiber to build relationships and to learn from one another. After eating a delicious homemade lunch, we all took the opportunity to explore different modes of fiber production, including natural dyeing, spinning, and high tanning. We had the opportunity to hand process flax using a brake and hackles, a method of processing bass fibers that has been used for centuries. To begin this episode, we talk with Candace Mullins to learn more about growing flax for linen. Candace shares about her experience discovering weaving and Appalachian fiber arts at Berea College, her vision for collaborative fiber production in Kentucky, and finally, on the power of fiber arts to tell stories. I'm Candace Mullins. Growing up, I started crocheting just for fun, and I just kind of bought gross yarn from like Walmart or something and just kind of taught myself, and then It wasn't until after college that I really sort of dove into fiber. Whenever I was in school, I didn't know that there was a weaving department. I wasn't interested in fiber art really at all, so I didn't take any weaving classes or any fiber classes. And then after school, because I work at the college, I could take a class per semester for free, and so I decided to take an Appalachian weaving class. And that was the first real step in the fiber journey, and I just fell in love. I got super obsessed. I bought a loom like halfway through the class. I hadn't even finished the class yet and I'm like, I have to have a loom now. (laughs) So I bought a loom and I met Philip Willett in Berea and he's a masterful spinner and weaver and has traveled the world learning about textiles and met another woman in West Virginia who's really good spinner and so I learned how to spin from her and learned some weaving techniques from Phil and have since dove in to fiber with flax and linen. And that's kind of been my passion, really, the past six months or so. I've grown it for two years now, but trying to figure out a better system for processing, because now that hemp... It's a big topic right now in Kentucky and agriculture, and I do think that there is a future for hemp, but right now it just seems really cost-prohibitive to small producers, and I would love to spend some more time refining the processing part of flax so that I can share 
the system with growers who might be interested in growing hemp for fiber but they can't afford to do it through the licensing process that you have to go through with the state. And I would like to have a system in place that could be useful for small producers that want to try a plant fiber and can't afford hemp. For listeners who may not be familiar with flax, how do you process it? That's a good question. It's a really beautiful plant, has gorgeous blue flowers. You plant it pretty early in the spring and it grows and you're harvesting really in June. It grows straight up and that's, you want it to grow as high as possible without going too much. You don't really want it to go to seed or the, the stalk or the plant becomes really, it's too easy to break. But basically it's a plant fiber. So you go through this whole process, you ret the plant, which means that you're letting bacteria eat part of the stalk so that the fibers can separate on the inside. So after you harvest and you dry it, you ret it, letting that process happen. And then you go through the pretty intense <laughs> on-farm process of basically taking it, breaking it, removing the outer stalk through combs and hackles, and then spinning, which is also in itself another skill that takes a really long time to learn because it's not so easy. It's not like spinning wool at all. There's no fine hairs that can catch to each other. You have to spin it really fast and fine. And the whole process of plant to linen, flax to linen, is a pretty in-depth process. But I'm hoping that if more producers in our region become interested in growing it, maybe more mills in our region will think about maybe adding equipment to make spinning flax to linen a viable future for fiber farmers. Do you think that small producers can make a living growing flax if it got hold kind of like hemp? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I do think it would still take quite a big plot to make it worthwhile to pay for it to be processed by a mill. And, you know, maybe it, and everyone hates this word in the ag space, but cooperative, it might be worth going in with six or seven people and saying, okay, we're going to grow each a half acre or a quarter of an acre, and then we'll put our plant together and we'll divvy up the fiber between all of us if we want, depending on what their end product is. You know, maybe one of us would be a weaver who would want the final product. You know, maybe they would buy all of the rest. So they're not responsible for growing all of the plant themselves and processing all of it themselves. They could buy the end product from the rest of the farmers. I don't know. It's something that no one's talking about. So it's hard to say if it's a viable opportunity for small producers, but I definitely think if we're going to be expending a lot of energy into hemp as fibers, we should be thinking about this plant that is, in my opinion, fairly easy to grow, very easy to grow. And a lot of people will use flax as a cover crop, so it's, it's good for the soil too. That's a hard question. My first plot I did was a 10 by 10 plot, and I haven't made a finished product with it yet, but this year I grew, I think it was 50 by 10, and got quite a bit more flax, but also I ran into challenges with hail. So because it is a long fiber, it's a plant fiber, you have to be really careful. You don't want a place that's going to be exposed to lots of wind. The hail came and chopped off the top of the flax plants and caused the growth to change, and so it wasn't just straight anymore. It like snapped it in half, and then it started growing really crooked, which is not something that you want to happen when you're thinking about processing it to spin it. You know, hemp is a lot more durable in that respect, so wind wouldn't be quite an issue, or hail might not be as damaging to something like hemp. You know, I think that there are advantages to each of them, and it's not that I 
don't think that hemp should be grown and that I don't think it's a viable opportunity. I just think right now it's very cost prohibitive to grow hemp, but there's a lot of energy going into publicizing it. So I would love to see some research and some energy also going into flax. And right now I'm not really trying to make money off of this. It's been more just on-farm research for me and personal growth for me. I've had a lot of opportunity to learn personal family history through this whole process, learning that I had weavers in my family that I never knew about. My great-grandmother, she was a weaver and she grew and processed a lot of fiber on their farm. And had I not gone into weaving the past couple years, my great-uncle, he would have never thought to say, hey, did you know that your great-grandmother did this on the farm? And so I have some pieces of her equipment, which are really fun. It's just been a really a personal journey for me, finding something that I can make that I can spend two hours on, and at the end of that time, I have something physical and tangible to hold in my hands. So much of what we do now is pushed out into the ether. I spend so much time on a computer for my work that it's really valuable for me to see something and hold something at the end of my time with it. And I think that's why I really love fiber. Yeah, with so many jobs online and so much less actual production, mm-hmm. it does seem like it's hard to actually make a product that you hold in your hands. Right. Those skills are being lost. And I think it's really valuable for our generation, very important that we learn these skills so that we can continue passing them on because they are going to be lost and those pieces of equipment are going to be burned or thrown away and no one's going to know what they are in 50 years if we don't take this time now to learn so that we can pass it on. I think it's really important that we all start looking at what the generations before us have done, learn, you know, maybe what didn't go so well and, you know, we don't continue to do that, but we take what they did and we continue to teach the beneficial parts, pass them on. Could you speak a little bit about why did you have this fiber day here at the farm and what's your vision for the fiber community in Kentucky? Yeah. Well, I had the Fiber Day at the farm mostly because I'm wanting to connect with more people that are doing knitting or weaving or just anything natural fiber related. I'm incredibly interested in dyeing that whole process, but I want to see us working more communally. I think in general right now, a lot of self-employed folks, especially who are artists, I think feel really competitive with one another because the market seems so small. And I would like to see us all just, I don't know, talking together, learning from each other, figuring out what we want. Do we want to make businesses out of what we do or do we want to keep them as hobbies, you know? I think there's a lot of value to sharing skills with each other and also spending time on a cloth. Like, we've got a drop spindle up there that a couple of people have been today learning how to spin on, and I'll be able to take that off the spindle and see different hands throughout that whole thread, and I love that. I love that fiber tells a story. When I was taking the weaving class three years ago, I had a friend that was in a really bad car accident. It was so bad that one of his friends in the car accident passed away at the scene, and I was really worried about him, and you can tell in the cloth that I was working on the moment that I found out that he was in a car accident because that cloth totally changed. From then on out, the rest of the night, you could see everything was a lot tighter. There were more mistakes in the cloth. And I just love that we have an opportunity to make something that tells a story that's a little bit deeper than just what you see there. You know, you can kind of tear it apart a little bit or look a little deeper and there's a story behind each of the threads. 
and that's kind of what I'm wanting to do with this community is build some relationships so that we all don't feel so competitive that we can learn and do the same things and that's okay there can be multiple people focused on one thing and it doesn't have to be competitive it can be fun we can learn together yeah why do you prefer to use natural fiber in your weaving and spinning well I don't like all of the chemicals and energy that it takes to turn something that's not a raw natural material into a fiber and I know that you know it's true that even natural fibers when they are taken to a mill to be processed on a large scale they still use chemicals so I know that it's not just natural versus unnatural but I'm really interested in materials that take our climate and our earth into perspective when they're being made and I think it's important for us to think more intensively about where clothing comes from if we feel the need to have fiber on our bodies that's not natural maybe we could go and get go to a thrift store and think about buying a used piece of clothing because so much of these clothes that we find in the store now are a lot of plastic and they're just going to sit in landfills for so long and a lot of them will just take forever to break down and i think a lot of what you know Micah and i try and do here at the farm is thinking about the climate we're not throwing plastic mulch down around our vegetables and I want the same to be true for the work that we're spending on our clothing or other home items as well. I want the climate and earth to be part of that conversation. And do you feel hopeful about our generation as far as this growing shift in consciousness around where clothing comes from? I do. You know, I know that this movement sort of happened in the 70s during the Back to the Land movement, and it's hard because we immerse ourselves in our environments that are, you know, we're around people that are like-minded, and so, you know, there are days where I'm like, yes, we're doing this, we're making change, we're, you know, learning how to grow our own food and learning how to make our own clothing, but then I have to also remind myself that there is the rest of the world and there is the rest of America, right? That's there are plenty of people that are in our generation that have no idea where their food comes from or the clothing that they wear is full of plastic chemicals. So I think we're at a unique opportunity that the internet is so easily and readily available that we can educate a lot easier than the back to the land folks could have done in the 70s. I mean, they had to <laughs> they had to work really hard to share the work that they were doing. So I think if we work really hard and come together as communities. I think it's possible. Definitely keeping in mind that we can't keep ourselves closed off in our own communities that we make, that we have to be building bridges externally. So today's Fiber Day. I want to build relationships with fiber leaders in the state, and I hope to grow this over the next couple of years so that people can come and actually learn from these leaders that are coming out of today. They can come and do a spinning workshop with Phil or Micah does tanning workshops on the farm. So the idea is that we kind of grow and solidify and that we can invite others in to come learn as well. Michael Wiles has his hands in many innovative projects on Cedar Creek Farm. He began experimenting with hide tanning four to five years ago and is committed to ethical and sustainable tanning practices. Unlike many contemporary large-scale tanneries that use toxic heavy metals, Micah uses natural tanning methods that are friendly to the environment to create quality, durable hides. He sources from local materials. 
I sit down with Micah on the farm to learn more about hide tanning. My name is Micah Wiles. This is Cedar Creek Farm. It's our family farm and we have a lot of different things going on. Some of the main focuses are raising grass-fed beef and our heritage breed Dexter cattle. We have lots of gardens and orchards, fruit and nut trees, and just been getting, in the past few years, getting more into hide tanning. So doing a lot of making buckskin from deer hides, making grain leather, and doing sheepskins, and all kinds of different tanning. How did you get into hide tanning? How I first got into it was through hunting. So I started hunting deer and just really trying to use the whole animal, you know, use the bones for making broth and just trying to find a use for all parts of the animal. And so the skin is there. And so I just figured out how to tan the hide and make buckskin, which turns out it's just this amazing material. It's super durable, it's super soft. And kind of from there, I just realized there was lots of different types of skins out there. There's kind of this huge resource that's not really being tapped into to create this really amazing fabric, basically. And so how long have you been doing it? I moved back to the farm, I guess about five years ago. And so for four or five years, when I started tanning the deer skins, and then kind of just more recently, I've been getting into some other tanning methods. If you're willing to share, for those who are listening who may not understand how the process works, mm-hmm. could you explain a little bit about what does it look like once the animal is processed? How do you turn it into then the beautiful hides that you ultimately end up with? Yeah, so the basic process for making buckskin, it's called brain tanning because traditionally people used brains as a dressing to, to soak the hides in and People all over the world kind of use this tanning method to tan skins to make clothing from. But the basic process is you're trying to isolate one layer of the skin. So there are all these membrane layer, there's the hair, there's the grain. And you're trying to just get it down to this one layer, which is the fiber network. So you're scraping off everything else, basically, getting down to that layer. And then it has all of these fibers that are kind of all interconnected. And that's what makes it so strong is unlike woven material, which is, has all parallel running fibers that you can just you know rip right down one of those lines. They're all randomly interwoven together. It's just super strong material and it lasts for decades, basically. Naturally, in the hide, all of those fibers have glues in them. If you just let that hide dry, it'll become rawhide. It'll be really hard, which is also useful. But for what we're trying to make, you want to basically, you want to lubricate all of those fibers so that as the hide is drying, the glues don't set up and it's still pliable and supple. So the brains or a soap and oil mixture, basically you just want an emulsified oil that can get into the hide and lubricate those fibers so that as you work it when it dries the fibers don't set up the glues don't harden and you have a soft really pliable material and then the final step is just smoking it which kind of seals it in and makes it so that if you get it wet then it'll stay soft it won't get hard when it dries it's pretty amazing process yeah (laughs) and there's there are many different ways to do it and the other process that i've been getting more into in the past couple years is the bark tanning 
which is traditionally how grain leather was made. There are tannins and different tree barks like oak bark, hemlock, sumac, different things like that. And you boil strong tea from that and soak the hides in there for weeks to months, depending on the size of the hide. How does the tanning that you do differ from tanning methods that are really heavily polluting and use lots of heavy metals? Tanning has always kind of been a polluting, you know, even going back to traditional bark tanning, they would always have tanneries on rivers and they would dump the spent tanning waste into the river. And it's still polluting on a large scale to have the bark, but it's boiled bark that most of the tannins have been absorbed into the leather. With the bark tanning, the material that's being used to tan it is tree bark. So it's all natural. It's just the tannins in that bark. And then with the brain tanning, you know, you can use brains or the soap and oil and then just smoking the hide. So there's no toxic chemicals that are being used to tan in the, with these methods. What kind of vision do you have for the future with the farm? So I've kind of tanning more hides now and trying to figure out what to do with them and I'm going to start selling some hides just whole tanned hides but we're also looking at different products that we can make to add value to those hides so things like bags and where Candace does woven material looking at incorporating some bags that have the hand tanned leather that I do and the hand woven fabric that she does and putting those together and just kind of having some different products like that things like wallets and belts and bags and just things that are easy to get started with. For more information on Cedar Creek Farm, including their tannery, visit their website at www.cedarcreekfarmky.com. We close this episode with an interview with Philip Willett, master spinner and weaver in Berea, Kentucky. In addition to creating beautiful yarns hand-dyed with natural dyes such as indigo and marigold, Phil is looked up to by many aspiring weavers as a teacher and mentor. Phil sat down with me at Cedar Creek Farm to talk about his journey in fiber creation and the art of working with natural fiber. My name is Phil Willett, and I'm one of probably 50% of the population of Kentucky that was actually born here. I've lived here all my life except when I went to college up north. And I am one of 14 children, the 13th born, which was essential for running a farm when I was a child. And I hail from Maysville, Kentucky, which is on the Ohio River. And my father's family has lived there since 1790. So we're what you call old blue bloods. Land rich and cash poor. I'm 61, hope to live to be 107 like my grandma, and I'm an artist. How did you get into weaving? Well, fiber arts is something I've always been interested in. When I was in high school, I was in northern Indiana and they had a lot of art programs there. And I entered what was called the National Scholastic Art Competition by producing a batik, which is another form of fiber arts done with wax and dyes. And I won national first place, and my piece hung in the Kennedy Center, along with a ceramic piece that I had made in an African motif. And so that also was fiber-oriented because the headdress above the ceramic mask was hand-knotted out of raffia grass. 
My family's made things ever since I was a little kid. My grandmother quilted for about 90 years, and I used to sit and thread her needles when I was three and four years old, so she'd have 25 threads ahead to do the quilting part of the process. She had a quilting frame that dropped from the ceiling, and she was a lovely woman, very petite, raised 13 children all by herself, and cleaned houses. And my grandfather farmed with mules until he died, even though he could afford to buy a tractor. He didn't want one. And I just always liked their way of living better than television, which when I was a boy was just starting round screen. I like making things, and so I ended up going to a private art school. And when I graduated with my BFA, I went to Chicago on scholarship at the Art Institute. I lived in Chicago for four months before my heart finally told me that this was not a healthy place for any human being to live. And that although many may choose it or desire it, that I wanted to go back home where I could see trees and hear owls and live in the country. And so that's what I did. In 1982, I came back and I taught and I taught and I taught. Taught for a lot of organizations in Lexington. From UK to Living Arts and Science Center, I spent 13 years as an assistant to the director. And I was in charge of designing and making anything they needed, murals, you know, anything creative. Then I went to the Montessori school to teach, and I loved that for several years, four maybe. And then I had a tragic event in my life, which made me move out into the country and stay there. And I started giving private art lessons to people who missed me. And it was at that point that I picked up an old loom that was actually a beautiful Swedish loom. A friend gave it to me. It was a bunch of boards in the back of his pickup truck. And he said he had lost the instruction book on how to put it together. And so I spent about a month assembling a loom, a Swedish Glamacra, Cadillac of looms, 60 inch, biggest one they made at the time. I was its third owner, it was in beautiful shape, and I learned how to not only put it together, but I learned how to thread it by myself. There were no books on the shelves about it because they'd all been deaccessioned because no one had checked them out in so long. So I just played stubborn, and then I taught myself how to weave after I found a few books on patterns. I could do plain weave, but then I taught myself how to do pattern weave. And I made rugs, bags, pillows, scarves, curtains, all kinds of stuff for myself, just for myself. It was a hobby. That's what I wanted it to be. I needed a hobby from painting because I painted very seriously and I sold my paintings at that point in my life. And it was very much had become a business rather than just a pleasure and teaching same way. So weaving became my hobby. And one day I started thinking about my grandma who also spun and I acquired a spinning wheel that I thought was in working order and after a little fiddling it was and I taught myself how to spin on it that was about 20 years ago and since that time I've spun for other people some but very few people realize that in one skein of yarn by the time I source it from a local farmer and I buy all my wool except for from one person in Sweden I buy all my wool locally as local as possible and I clean all of it in rainwater with natural lye soap that a friend makes for me. And then I allow the sheep to clean itself because as I leave it out on my racks in my backyard, a big full fleece, the potassium salts that are not only emitted by sheep and the lanolin are also emitted by human beings. And they create 
a lanolin-based soap, which is lovely. And it's why when you go out in the field and you spread a fleece apart, you see that if it's a white sheep, you see this beautiful white, snow white skin and snow white fleece. It's because they're self-cleaning. So I leave them out for a week in the sun and the dew. And I love it if we have a thunderstorm. I think it puts the perk back in the curls mm -hmm. a little bit and just beats the out of it. And <laughs> it just really makes for nice, organic, no chemical wool that I spin and I gave up chemical dyeing. I used to run a rug hooking group and use a lot of chemical dyes to help the women and a few men that were in the group have recycled wools in various colors. And I gave up all those chemical dyes and started doing nothing but tannin dyes, which are trees, nuts, uh, roots. And I use leaves, I use berries, I use flowers, I use just an absolute multitude of different things to create the colors for my weavings and I stopped selling my weavings I stopped you know I, I just do it for me now and right now I'm in the process of spinning I need five pounds and that doesn't sound like a lot but five pounds of wool in seven different colors that are from a family of sheep it's, I'm going to call it my seven sisters blanket because each one of them is a different color of silver or gray and one was actually nearly black. And so it's gonna be a, a really subtle striped blanket, all made by seven, you know, the efforts of seven sisters and little old me. That's how that I started and that's where I'm at. And I rescue spinning wheels, especially Berea College spinning wheels. Even though I'm not from here, I see their importance as antiques and as relics of what made Berea famous was when Mrs. Roosevelt, Eleanor, visited here and visited the weaving department and saw their beautiful coverlets and brought, I think, four or five back to the White House and told all of her friends about them. And before long, Berea College had a place to sell, not only in Chicago, but in New York City. And it was the weaving that got them there. But it's forgotten history, you know, it's stuffed away. You hear a lot about the music and it's great too. I'm not putting anything down. I'm just reminding people that the weaving of the Appalachian people like me even today, as I sit in my friend's antique store and spin every week, I have sometimes 40 people get off the interstate, come in her shop and say, wow, I've seen one of those and that's a loom, isn't it? And I'll say, no, I'm using a spinning wheel. So I'm out there just trying to keep the craft alive. It's a mission. What is it that you love about weaving and spinning? Well, I love them because they're monotonous and I don't have to think. And in fact, when I'm spinning, I don't even have to look at what I'm doing, it, especially if I'm in a really peaceful, quiet situation. And then I can turn my mind off and be in an almost meditative state of just blissful peace. And that's hard to find. It is. And I encourage everyone to learn. It's simple. Come see me in Berea. What kinds of fiber are your, is your favorite to Well, I love all fibers, but I'm especially interested in supporting rare breed sheep. The industry since the Industrial Revolution has been annihilating sheep of color. Brown sheep, black sheep, gray sheep, silver sheep, tan sheep. You know, they went in the freezer. They were butchered when they were very young. And now, since about 1980, 
some people who are into fiber arts have decided on the importance of supporting rare breed sheep. And I'm talking a breed where they're in the entirety of the United States, there may only be 150 registered purebred of that type of sheep. When once in the United States, there were at least, I, I'm just going to throw a number out, five or 600 distinct sheep. The Navajo had their sheep. You know, there were just multitudes of sheep, multitudes of colors, multitudes of fiber, strength, softness, and the industry wants to bring it all down into three inch fiber, very soft, pure white. And then their machines can make wool clothing for people faster. Why is it that people are interested just in the pure white? Well, because when it comes to doing dyes, it's all chemistry and math. And if a sheep's coat is a slightly different color in one spot and you spin that yarn and it's not pure white, it's going to look like an imperfection hmm. in the spun, you know, the spun and woven object, which to me is beautiful. But Have you noticed any kind of consciousness shift in how people are buying clothing and as far as being interested in more natural dyes and oh tremendously so with hemp's resurgence i hope it again that was my great grandparents main cash crop until the 1920s from 1790 it was their main cash crop and it was eliminated for ridiculous reasons and ironically, in the 1940s, during the war, the government came to my grandfather and forced him to raise as much as he could because of the war effort. So it's all politics. I don't want to get there. But people are becoming more aware that chemicals are what is defiling our planet, defiling our bodies, our animals, the birds, the bees. And that's why I try to do everything that I do to my yarns is 100% natural. I use spring water from a mountain for water to dye things in. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm thankful to have had the people and the luck to run into some really old people who taught me a lot of stuff that there were no books about. Now we've got the internet and there's a lot of explosive creativity going on with it and it thrills me to death because I remember when I used to be sitting on the farm going scratching my head now how did grandma do that you know makes me happy do you have many students and mentees young I, people I know lots of kids from the college Berea College come over to my house which isn't very far away from Berea and say someone told me you could teach me how to drop spin or spin or weave and I could not count. I've lived in Berea now eight years, and I'll bet you I've taught over 100 young people how to spin, minimum, and at least 12 how to do a basic threading of a loom and weaving. At no charge, just because I want to see people continue with this, you hmm. know. Do you have any last things you'd like to share? Buy wool from an honest man. <laughs> <laughs> Not a department store.
that wraps up this final edition of Woven Roots. Make sure to follow updates from the innovative work that Micah, Candace, and the Walls family are doing on Cedar Creek Farm by visiting their website at www.cedarcreekfarmky.com and by following them on Instagram and Facebook. To connect with and support Community Farm Alliance, visit our website, www.cfaky.org, and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Sending a very special thank you to everyone at Community Farm Alliance, Fibershed, and the Highlander Center for Research and Education who supported this podcast as part of a project of the Appalachian Transition Fellowship. It has been a pleasure to bring you stories of fiber innovators in Appalachian, Kentucky. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.